You're now plugged in to the Delphi Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Just wrapped up an incredible episode with Henry, who's the founder of Penumbra Labs, a leading privacy project in the space. The episode was co-hosted by John Girl, who's a research lead at Delphi Digital, and brought a ton of technical knowledge to the episode, given his recent report on privacy. Through this episode, you can hear Henry's true passion and knowledge of privacy. It sounds like he spent the last couple of years just night and day thinking about privacy across every avenue, and it really comes out during the podcast. We explored how financial privacy is a human right, all the way to the limits of what can be built on a fully transparent chain like Ethereum, and whether we can expect most liquidity to be in private form over the next five to 10 years. In the technical segment, we dove into the various designs of privacy, including privacy being built into L1s, L2s, apps, and through smart contracts like Tornado Cash. We discussed Penumbra's unique two-phase protocol for privacy versus concurrent access to state and the potential of threshold decryption as a go-to MEV solution. Our conversation also covered private staking designs, challenges with IBC, and the exciting possibilities enabled by interchain accounts with Penumbra. If you like this episode, share the link on Twitter and let us know what you think. With that, let's dive in. Before we jump in, a quick note. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are those of the speakers at the time of the recording and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent. Delphi Ventures and the speakers may have investments and assets identified in this episode. None of the content of this podcast is investment advice and should not be construed to be a recommendation to buy or sell or take any other financial decision whatsoever. Now, time for the episode. Today, I'm thrilled to have on Henry de Vlance, who is the founder of Penumbra Labs. He previously worked on Zcash at the Zcash Foundation, on Bulletproofs at Chainink, and on Rust cryptography libraries like Curve 25519-DELEC. I'm sure I messed some of that up, but Henry, how are you? I'm great. Uh, it's good to be talking. Yeah. Thanks. We also have John Gurl, who is a research lead at Delphi Digital. He recently wrote a report called Everyone Needs Privacy, which is the most in-depth report on privacy I've read recently. Um, so John, thanks as well for coming on, being a co-host. Yeah, happy to be here. So Henry, let's start off with with the most basic. Let's let's get your two cents on what Penumbra is just to set the stage. Yeah, so um, what we're building at, at Penumbra is uh, a, a private DEX that we think is the beginning of a, a sort of general purpose interchain privacy layer. So for context of, of why we're building what we're building, um, really it started with this question of like how you build uh, private applications that people actually want to use. So I'd been working on privacy tech for many years and built a lot of really cool technology, but it seemed like there's this big gap where you can imagine a, like a Venn diagram of like, here's the, the crypto protocols that people actually use. Here's the ones that are private. And it's just like two circles, right? Which isn't great. And so the question sort of became like, okay, well, We've got the, the ZK technology to the point where you can build all these things. So it's no longer a question of just like, oh, what is like a use case that like, oh, I could build this with ZK. And the question became like, what is the kind of theory of change of how does some, like what is a use case where a private version of some application can outcompete uh, a transparent alternative 
And how do we start with that? Because the status quo at the time was like, you'd have all these, these privacy projects where it's like, oh, we're building like a private X and it's like, it's like X and it's private, but it like kind of sucks, but like you should use it anyway, right? And we want to break out of that and say, what's a use case where privacy really makes it a better product? And so trading was a kind of a, a natural or, or obvious um, sort of first choice there because in the context of a, a market, right, every market is also a market in information. That's what price discovery is. And so you would think that uh, information actually has some kind of quantifiable value. And so having a, a platform where people can control the disclosure of that information could meaningfully outcompete transparent alternatives. Um, so that's kind of how we started with like, okay, let's build a private DEX. But the other side of it is, you know, in the future, in the sort of like grand five, 10 year now uh, world, like we think that privacy technology is going to be way, way more mainstream than it is uh, today. It, it feels like something like that is just inevitable. But to actually go from where we are now to that sort of, you know, big future, you need to figure out concretely, like, what are all the steps along the way? And so, like, what's the, the smallest useful thing that we can build that builds in privacy that we can sort of use those whatever lessons we learn along, along the way to building that, um, uh, that beachhead to inform the design of some kind of uh, more general purpose thing rather than starting off with like, oh, we're going to go off and like sit in the desert for like five years and like use our brain to come up with a crystal palace something and then like, oops, the world moved out, right? So so it's kind of this idea of like, we want to go to this uh, grand vision of privacy, but we want to do so in small steps where each step along the way is like a, a meaningful product that can um, outcompete alternatives because it's private. That's awesome. So your your main focus right now is launching a private DEX, but the grand vision here is to create a private network that would be similar to Ethereum or I, I'm, what? yeah, sorry, what would be the grand vision at the end of the day? The, the grand vision is to have um, like general purpose privacy technology. But, and then to your, to your point is like, is that, does that look like there's like one network that is like a private Ethereum or does that look like a network that can act as, you know, an interchain privacy layer where you can interact with different kinds of, of smart contracts, different kinds of applications, um, and maybe have those interactions be either public or semi-private or fully private, right? Like there's this really big design space and we don't know exactly how that's going to work out. So for the moment, we're focused on one sort of narrow uh, application that we think has the kind of... Uh, is going to give us insight into kind of the end to end of like, how do you make a, a useful private application? Yeah. Thanks for that. that this, this is great. Um, so one of the things that you said caught my interest, you said that like, you know, private applications, um, like the, the will become mainstream in future or that's like the likely case. Um, so I want to, I want to like, uh, double down on that. And uh, basically, I, I'm, I'm curious to get your like um, sort of 
imagination like how privacy landscape looks like five to ten years from now and obviously like there's no right answers here because like in crypto we don't even know like what's gonna happen next week let alone like um five ten years so but to actually help you with that also i, I want to like very very briefly um mention some of the factors that i think will be in play so um there are a bunch of things that we don't know but we probably know that it's going to be really, really hard for something like Ethereum to um, trans to become a, a private chain. Um, like at least I, I don't see any proactive um, effort on that on that front. And so so let's 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 put this in in, in our pocket. And then the next thing that well, we know is that currently a lot uh, the most of the activity is on uh, uh, on transparent chain. Uh, the liquidity is in the transparent form, and um, really the um, uh, the most like adopted private applications, which are shielded pools, uh, are really really tiny compared to transparent liquidity. And so, um, when you have a very like a tiny um, um, private uh, uh, um, uh, anonymity set. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't um, like the the privacy guarantees aren't that strong at the moment because like with the rise of AI, chain analysis companies can actually like tie um, you know deposits and, and withdrawals with some statistical analysis. So we know that like this pass through um, pri opt in privacy doesn't really work. Um, would you expect that? Like, given these two things, would you expect uh, that like in five to ten years from now? most of the liquidity will move to private chains um, or is that too strong of a uh, opinion? Um, I'm, I'm curious. So I have a sort of two, two parts. The first part is is just sort of riffing on, on some of the points that you made. And then the second is the sort of the, the grand vision of why, why I think something like this is, is going to be inevitable. So one thing you mentioned is um, you know, at this point, it would be very difficult for uh, Ethereum to become a, a private chain. And that's true, technically. But I would say even if, you know, there was like a magic occurred and it was totally technically feasible, um, I don't think that that would actually be valuable, right? If you look at like, like what makes Ethereum special, what makes Ethereum value, it's not actually the... Uh, it, like like the technical design decisions of Ethereum are not the thing that makes Ethereum valuable, right? Like what makes Ethereum valuable is that it has public state, right? It's like one big sandbox of all of the public state and anybody can interact with that. And if you were building a, if you're designing a blockchain from scratch today, you would not make like most of the design decisions of Ethereum. But it doesn't really matter because, you know, that's where the state is. That's what people find uh, useful. And I would say actually like pretty much any existing uh, uh, blockchain that people find valuable, it's valuable because of the public state. Um, and, and the reason is that the blockchain is acting as this sort of like verifiable coordination surface for people to do whatever kind of uh, trust-minimized coordination they want to do. 
and and if you just make all of that private, I think you you would destroy most of the value, right? And and part that the insight is there is that what people want is not act like you know if, if you just look at a private dex for instance, you say like oh we're gonna make everything private. That's actually not use. Nobody wants to use like a market where they have like no idea like what the prices are, what liquidity there is, like what um, trades have like ever happened. And what people, what what I think the the key uh, point is, is that it's not just about how do you make things private, but it's about how do you mediate between the private per user state. Like I don't want to reveal my specific activity. But I still want to be able to get all of the benefits of uh, DeFi systems that have been built where there's like, okay, I can just like go and look and see what is the state of the aggregate of this market, right? And I don't have to trust some exchange or, you know, some centralized entity to know what that state is. Um, I can just see it. And and I think, you know, to the second point about there's very little liquidity in, in existing shielded pools. I mean, in some sense, it's not really liquidity at all, right? Like, like I would think of liquidity as being capital that is possible to interact with in some way. But a lot of the sort of pass-through privacy systems that have been built, like you put your funds in the shielded pool and then like you can't do anything with them while they're there. You then immediately take them out. So I think that the, the future direction is not like, necessarily like oh like you know ethereum like becomes a private chain or like all of the liquidity moves onto private chains i think it's that every success like every system in five to ten years that is successful is going to have some kind of notion of this is the public chain state that is aggregating all of the user's information and then here is this other card which is like uh private per user state so that each individual user can um, interact with the the state of the system without having to reveal their specific activity, and that's actually kind of how you know in some way the traditional financial system works, right? Like there's public reports and statistics on like here's like the state of all the balances in the banks, um, but that doesn't include like and here is like you know Tommy's bank account, like that part is not public, so. That's kind of how I see that trend going. And and the reason that I think that there's some kind of inevitability there is that you end up having this convergent evolution or convergent design demands between privacy and scalability. If you have a system where each individual user's uh, data is public and broadcast to every other user of the system, that is just not scalable. In order to have a like uh, a scalable system, you need to be able to say like, you know, this data is only going to go to the parts of the system that actually have a, a requirement to process it, and and that's I think where you see this kind of like like I I don't know exactly what form this will take, but um, I I believe that there will be some kind of of convergence with uh between privacy and scalability. Because in, in a private system, a lot of the data just like never hits the chain. And therefore, you know, the chain is kind of automatically more scalable. Or on the other hand, if you're trying to build something that's very scalable, that you can have like, you know, every um, uh, every person's like account 
as part of this system, you can't be like just not even thinking about the, the privacy part, but just from a scalability point of view, you can't be broadcasting all of that data all the time. You need a way to say like, okay, this part of the, the chain state is kind of summarized. And, and how do you do that kind of summarization in a verifiable way? Well, you use a ZK proof. And then, okay, now you have privacy. Henry, that's incredible. I, I never really had a mental model for what you're describing in the sense that everything on chain could be public. You can have this data to look at. And then on the user side, you know, your own data and your own interactions are are private. And I, I really like your analogy in that sense, right? Like, you know, Charles Schwab, everybody knows how big these money market accounts are. They don't exactly know how much of it I own or you own or, or John earns. Right. I th- and I think another thing that's interesting from that perspective is a lot of the time uh, privacy is being is, is presented as, okay, here's this like radical thing. We're doing this like cypherpunk vision, blah, blah, blah. But like... For me, you know, like whether I'm a cypherpunk or not, it's kind of like, it's like, let's just try to go back to the private, like the web two privacy model, right? Where like, you know, previously you had some kind of centralized intermediary that has everybody's account data, but like, you know, your broker is not like telling everybody else, like exactly what your trades are, how, like we should just like go back to that like TradFi privacy story um, first. Like it's not like some kind of radical departure. It's just like, let's not broadcast everybody's bank accounts. Henry, one, this might be like a naive question, but I mean, there is like a certain level of privacy that people like care about and don't care about, right? Like in your example, like going back to that Web2 model is is a lot of what you're describing here, but in that sense, I think it might be a little bit different, right? Because like the web three entities can't leak the data of the user because the user side is encrypted. So like we, we kind of solve for that. But the other side of this is like, I think people are generally a bit okay with some obfuscation. Like nobody really knows what ETH wallets are. So like, sure, everything's public, but they can't link it to you. Do you think that people are, are at a mature state where they're they want to make an active decision to go from like obfuscated ETH addresses and accounts to something that is fully private? Like, do you think that they care enough to do that? I guess implicit in the question of like, do people care enough to do that is like, what is the cost associated with that? Right? Like if you, if, if you look at, for instance, like, like Signal and WhatsApp a few years ago, at one point when, when WhatsApp was being sort of further assimilated into the Facebook org, there was a bit of an outcry about it. And uh, at that point, a lot of people who didn't want Facebook to have all of their data were like, okay, you know, I'm going to signal and I'm just going to switch. And when they, when those people made that choice, signal existed as an alternative that uh, had security and privacy without imposing like a really excessive uh, cost in terms of usability, right? And that didn't exist, say, you know, 10 years ago, if you were trying to use like like Jabber and XMPP with encryption, like it's a total nightmare. So I think, you know, it, it kind of gets to this this point about revealed preferences as, as only a, letting you look at like first order preferences and not second order preferences or only looking at preferences in a specific context. And so 
the way I would kind of shift or reframe that is like as a protocol designer, the challenge is how do you create a context where people who want to have some privacy, instead of like, you know, jumping through all these like obfuscation hoops with like different ETH addresses or whatever, they can just like use a private tool. And I think that it is possible to have, like if, if, if you imagine the sort of like platonic ideal of a, a private system, that could actually be easier. Like, like why should somebody have to figure out like, okay, I have to keep track of these like, you know, 72 different ETH addresses that I've used at different points in time and like carefully keep in my mind or like a spreadsheet or something, what purpose I used what for and like never make a mistake or, you know, it'll all be like docs, right? Like that, that actually sucks as a user experience. And if you built a private system that just worked, then, you know, maybe you could just like have one address and it would be fine because your address wouldn't be like, you know, giving up all of your on-chain activity. So I think that there's really the important question there is how do you create um, products and how do you create a technical context where people who want to have privacy can make that choice without taking on this like super heavy, huge burden of usability costs on themselves. Um, and that, I, you know, is a thing that, that we think about a lot. No, that's really good framing. I like the way that you reframe the question and, and your answer there. Moving on to something, I guess, a little bit tangential is just the regulation side. So I guess the thing that comes to mind when we think of regulation in the context of privacy is the Tornado Cash sanctions. So following the sanctions, the crypto community was loud. They pushed back on OFAC's decision, you know, arguing privacy is a, you know, human right. But I think with the privacy advocates in crypto, there's no like rough consensus on how exactly to deal with regulation, right? Some try to anticipate what regulation may come, some design friendly, you know, designs with few keys and custom privacy policies. And then some people just don't care altogether. Where do you stand in the spectrum of like trying to address regulation while trying to maintain that privacy is that human right? Yeah. So one point that I would make that I think is is pretty underappreciated in this discourse is that a lot of features about that that allow you to do like compliance, disclosure, et cetera, are also features that you just need in order to have basic operational competence um, if you're using a system. Um, one example of, of how those things actually just converge is uh, for Penumbra, we've been working on uh, a web wallet or like a, a web user experience and thinking about what that means. And uh, the web is, is not particularly friendly to having you know secure and, and private software. So it's a quite difficult environment to design for. And we don't want to have, for instance, you know, if you do like a, if the, the question is kind of like, okay, imagine that you had a connect to wallet flow, like uh, where you can go to some DAP and you can like, you know, authorize it to talk to your browser extension and, you know, use this private chain or whatever. Well, you need to make sure that that um, page, which is relatively untrusted, should never have access to any of your long-term keys including the keys that you're using to, to view your own account. 
So now you need a way for that browser extension to transmit, you know, to basically disclose individual transaction contents to the untrusted page so it's not leaking any long-term keys. And stepping back from that, okay, that's a, a decision that you're just making for like purely like technical security reasons. Like how do you make a a web a, a web experience for a private chain that isn't terribly insecure? But in order to solve that problem, well, actually it turns out that what you're building is exactly a fine-grained disclosure capability, but it's disclosure, you know, between different pieces of your own software stack. And so a lot of the time, you know, people get like, especially like, like privacy enthusiasts, I think can kind of get really hung up on like, oh, this is this like, you know, like disclosure tool, blah, blah, what is that for? It's like, well, you know, if you think about what it means to like use your own software in a kind of competent way, a lot of the tools that you would need to also build an accounting, like to do accounting even, right? Like, well, you have to like disclose stuff to your own accountant and you don't want to like have to hand over all your spend keys. And so from the technology standpoint, a lot of the pieces of the stack that you need in order to be able to demonstrate, like, here's exactly what my um, activity is. I like, you know, comply with all the rules, et cetera. Those are things that you have to build anyway, um, just for, for operational reasons. So that's, that's sort of one point on the, on the technology, right? Like Penumbra has uh, a whole separation of capability between like spending, viewing, um, individual transaction disclosure, et cetera, all in service of just software security. But then coming to the regulation point and the, the sort of conflict or, or disagreement within uh, the, the privacy um, or the, the crypto community about like what's the best way to, to engage I think there's a, a fundamental problem with trying to do protocol design as a response to regulation by enforcement, right? In, in a world where there were like clear uh, rules, you could go and like design those into protocols, right? But in a world where like one day uh, the treasury like sends out a press release that like everybody is now a criminal, right? That there's no way that you can like protocol design your way out of that because it's just like arbitrary and like, you know, incompatible with, with the rule of law. And you can't bake that into uh, the kind of foundational protocol level stuff. Um, and And I think that it's a mistake to think that like, oh, if we just like add like, you know, another set of like disclosure tools, then like suddenly it will make the regulation by enforcement problem go away. Like Tornado actually had and has uh, disclosure capabilities that let you prove that, you know, these funds that I'm withdrawing came from my own, like, you know, it, it doesn't commingle funds and you can see exactly uh, how the funds you know, stayed in the pool or, or not. Um, did that matter? Well, no. So like at, at the, at some level, right? Like I think that it's important to, to engage with, uh, regulation, with regulatory processes, et cetera. But there's, there's a kind of fundamental problem of like the rule of law 
where if regulators are not going to like declare ground rules from the start, you can't really like design your way around like them failing to do their jobs. Like especially the aspect of like if you if you comply with one regulation uh, today and the next day there's like new regulation and you don't comply with it. Um, like there's also no benefit to complying with the first regulation in the first place. Um, like I see this like as a kind of binary thing. Um, but yeah, that's just my two cents on it. John, um, just um, just one follow-up question there, Henry. I mean, I agree with you, right? Like regulation by enforcement is the wrong path. Like you need rulemaking, but everything we're seeing is that we're not getting that rulemaking, right? And like killer builders like you are continuing to drive forward like private applications, which which I love and I'm a huge fan of. But it seems like this rift between what the government wants and what we're going to get or what we're not going to get is always going to be there, at least for the next, call it two to three years. So, I mean, are you comfortable pushing the bounds knowing that, you know, what you're, what we're building on the privacy side might be at odds with, you know, our government, which really isn't giving us any clarity here? I mean, I don't know. I don't really... Again, I don't really see it as as pushing the bounds necessarily. It's you know, development of encryption software is not a new thing. Um, there's pretty well established, uh, you know, both like law and policy about like what it means to develop encryption software. Um, and and this you know falls into that that category. Um. Like, despite what, what impression people may have, you know, we do have a society that is supposed to be built on the rule of law. And that means that, like, if the government thinks that something shouldn't be done, it has to, like, say so ahead of time in the form of, like, you know, making a law. Um, so I, I, I think there's a lot of uncertainty about um, what actions regulators are going to take. But on uh, the development of of privacy preserving software, the development of encryption technology is pretty well settled in the United States, and so I'm not really worried about that part. That's that's a good answer. I um the thing in the U.S. that gives me some hope, maybe some cope, is I agree with the regulators you know, having trouble getting up to speed on the new technology. But I guess the courts always gave me some some relief, right? That in the extreme scenario, like both sides would have their opportunity to like make their case versus just arbitrary action. And uh, you know, that always gave me some relief. But I think I think that things are actually headed in that direction. Like um, you know, this morning there's the SEC's response to the or sorry, Coinbase's response to the SEC's Wells notice. Um, and if you read the the introduction, it's it's just a, like a list of like, okay, here's all the reasons you know that we're going to use in court if you um, come after us. And you know, if if that's how things go, that's how things go, I guess. But um, you know, in the meantime, uh, I think the amount of possible like I don't want to sort of just go all, all on the like privacy thing, right? Because like. Like I personally am am motivated by like let's build private infrastructure. I don't think that that's like sufficient to make a compelling product. So it's not the thing that I focus on. But for me personally, 
the amount of like potential future harm that could be caused by just having like more and more um, adoption on chain in transparent, like global, public, immutable state is just really terrifying. Like when people talk about like, oh, let's like onboard the next like billion users into this like, you know, surveillance dystopia, that scares the shit out of me. And it's not just a question of like, oh, well, what about, you know, the potential for, for regulation, but like from a user harm perspective, like what about the potential harms, like, you know, 10 years from now of having everybody's financial data just be public, right? That is a thing that keeps me up at night. And just like, it's not a thing that I, that I talk about a ton because I think, you know, there's many people who, who, who talk about that. And, and I think that in the end, it's not actually enough to like, you know, make a product, but it is a, a real motivator. And I think it's not just a question of like, okay, well, what about, you know, the, the sort of regulatory aspect, but like, well, what about the, the potential for user harm? Even, even the users like life safety, right? Like, um, life security. I mean, like we, like there has been numerous um attacks not in like just in the digital world but also in the in the physical world um because you can be pretty much targeted um uh, as as all of your balance is exposed um so yeah i'm 100 percent with you on that that this is like um pretty important topic that's that gets overlooked all the time i want to shift gears a bit on uh to to technical um subjects um and um, to start off, um, uh, I wonder your take on um, what, like the, the infrastructures, um, um, the uh, the infrastructure architectures for private applications. So Penumbra is a private text, but effectively it's like a shielded pool with a with a with a native um, text functionality. Um, and today, when we look at shielded pools, we see them all in 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 all forms, right? Um, like Penumbra is, is a sovereign layer one. Aztec um, is another shielded pool, which is um, a rollup. And then uh, um, Tornado is uh, basically a DAP on a smart contract app on Ethereum mainnet. Um, do, you, do you think this architecture matters from a, a privacy perspective? Like, do you see any clear advantages and maybe even disadvantages of like, um, building a shielded pool as a sovereign layer one, as opposed to a layer two or a smart contract. Yeah. The, what I would say is like, first and foremost, I would conceptualize privacy or uh, control or information disclosure as being a kind of orthogonal design access to other considerations that, you know, in, in existing um, systems. So, for instance, the choice of like, you know, should something be uh, L1 or L2 or dot, like there's various effects that that has on, you know, the trust assumptions, the scalability properties, et cetera. These are all these different design axes that you can have. The question of, you know, what information is disclosed in what parts of this protocol is an entirely kind of orthogonal, like new um, dimension to the design space. And I think that explains why we see many different uh, privacy uh, projects 
operating in um, you know different forms. It's not it, like once you have this new dimension to the design space, the existing trade-offs in the design space of like should something be an L1 or an L2 or a roll-up don't disappear. They just become they have this new aspect. And so I think that there's not going to be, you know, a single right answer um, because those existing trade-offs uh, still still exist. For us, we chose to have uh, to be a, a, an L1 because a lot of the things that we wanted to do um, actually did require having uh, pretty deep integration with uh, the consensus layer, right? So one one important thing is is being able to do batch processing. Um, most of the interesting parts of the penumbra decks happen uh, at the end of the block in a single batch. So that kind of automatically eliminates a lot of the uh, transaction ordering uh, questions because. Uh, you know, your ordering within the block doesn't really matter because everything will just get batched up at the end. And it's that type of sort of like vertical integration between like, what are the privacy properties of the thing? What are the DeFi properties of the thing? What are the consensus properties of the thing? That is is really only possible, um, you know, having ownership of, of that whole stack. Um, however, you know, having, having that full stack also comes with costs, right? Like it's, it's taken us a while to build out all the foundational pieces. And while I think that those are going to be really cool, like that, you know, that is a, a considerable amount of effort. Um, so I'm not going to say that that is, you know, unqualified, like the best choice for any project. Um, so I think it, it what it really comes down to is just like, uh, the, the addition of privacy as an additional design dimension doesn't change the fact that all of the existing design dimensions still have all their own trade-offs. Yeah, that that makes sense. Um, while we're here, um, can we actually um, could you actually walk us through that like bad swaps? You you you've been uh, bringing that up um, um, a number of times, and because it's like a very core aspect of Penumbra. Um, for those who were not familiar, how does that process? Um, look like can you, can you walk us through that yeah so let me actually start by giving a kind of basic overview of of the kind of tag or design stack for sure. penumbra so we're building a uh, tendermint chain um so in the existing cosmos ecosystem you have tendermint which is the consensus engine and the cosmos sdk which is kind of like ruby on rails for blockchains for us because what we're building has uh, such a different shape um, it didn't really make sense to to use the Cosmos SDK, so we're building our own um, private uh, system uh, using Tendermint as the consensus engine. What that system consists of is, first of all, a multi-asset shielded pool where we can record uh, any asset, uh, any kind of asset, privately in one big shielded pool, and then using that shielded pool as a kind of private base layer. We have uh, shielded staking and, and delegation. Um, we have uh, shielded swaps. We have uh, concentrated liquidity for market making. 
that is, uh, you know, the, the liquidity positions are public, but they're created out of the shielded pool. So everybody can see the open orders, but people can't say, oh, and this is like all part of like this account's trading strategy. Um, and then finally, we have uh, transfers uh, using IBC from inside the chain to outside or, or vice versa. And having only the shielded pool inside of Penumbra means that the privacy boundary is aligned with the cross-chain boundary. So if somebody does an IBC transfer from some other chain into Penumbra, at the moment that they move their funds over into Penumbra, those are deposited in the shielded pool, recorded privately. There's no transparent pool inside of Penumbra. Um, and that's kind of the, the, the private uh, base layer. So the, the really cool feature that we've uh, been working on is, is the, the DEX. And you can think of that as kind of splitting up into two parts. There's a kind of front end, not in the, the user, uh, user interface sense, but uh, in the, the like technical sense uh, on chain. There's a, a swap mechanism where somebody can say like, hey, I want to swap um, some amount of, of this asset for some amount of that asset. And all of those swaps get um, uh, batched together uh, for all of the swaps within a, a given block are batched together into a single trade. Uh, and then that trade gets sent to the kind of backend DEX engine, which executes it against uh, concentrated liquidity. And then uh, says like, okay, here's the common clearing price that everybody in that batch got. And users who've had submitted a, uh, a swap can then make a, a proof that I submitted, you know, I, I had this pro rata share of the batch. Here's the public clearing price. And now I can privately mint um, my output amount. Uh, and and show that that's consistent with the the on-chain prices. Uh, so that's that's kind of the the sort of overview of of the stack. Um, yeah, yeah. So so to rephrase it, basically, users contribute to to batch uh, swaps that are done in batches, and then at the at the end of the uh, trade execution. They go ahead and indiv individually like claim their pro rata shares of of their um, um, the the trading pair that that the, uh, sorry the the asset that they want uh, at the end of that trade, right? Um, and and the, the the motivation there is like partly technical uh, about like okay how would you build all this stuff using zk proofs. But it's also partly motivated by mechanism design. There's a lot of like stuff about transaction ordering, but if you think about it, like it's a kind of a self-inflicted problem, right? Like in a blockchain, the fundamental like unit of, or increment of of time is the block. the The blockchain comes to consensus on transactions in batches, but then people build economic mechanisms that rely on a kind of finer notion of, of time than is actually provided by the chain. And then like surprise, there's all this like mechanical arbitrage and like, like bullshit rent seeking that comes from trying to game that part of the system. And 
you know, we could just not do that and say like, well, we should have uh, on-chain like economic mechanisms that are aligned with the actual like notion of, of time provided by the system. If the system is coming to consensus on transactions in batches called blocks, then it should be processing them also in batches. Yeah, that's that's a um, um, yeah, that's a great in- insight actually, um, because I can definitely see how that can alleviate a lot of the MEV like negative uh, externalities of MEV, right? Um, like it based effectively, it doesn't matter. Um, like the ordering of your transaction within that block doesn't doesn't matter at all. And so you don't get sandwiched, you don't get fraud run. Um, it's effectively all of, all of those trades get executed at that same heartbeat. Um, so that really eliminates a lot of the MEV problems. Um, but in addition to that, you also have this um, another armor against MEV, uh, which is threshold decryption. So... I want to I want to get your your take on this. The because um, when when chains deal with MEV, uh, they can be really like um, innovative and find their own ways, own unique ways. But with regards to like threshold decryption, my opinion is that I see that this is something that can be like largely generalized to a lot of chains and and, and like has the potential to become a, like a common way for chains to, to fight MEV. Um, do you, do you think this makes sense? Uh, do you see this as a, like, a as getting more and more adopted threshold decryption? Like, first of all, I, w- I want you to like actually explain us what it is. And then, and then basically I wonder, um, your takes on, on its future. Yeah. As, as so, a way to fight MEV. Yeah. So I'll, I'll highlight one difference. So that I think is is relevant between the way that we do that in Penumbra and, and the way that it might work for other systems. So in threshold decryption, the idea is um, you're going to have some kind of uh, encryption key that is uh, a chain parameter. And the decryption key, instead of being held by one entity, is going to be shared amongst uh, all of the members of some committee. Ideally, this like, you know, the validators of the chain Right. Um, and then you can say, OK, well, as long as half or two thirds or whatever threshold you choose uh, of the validators decide to decrypt this data, then it can be uh, revealed publicly. But until that point, nobody knows uh, what's in there. And you would have to have a sort of colluding uh, fraction of the the validators or the committee members in order to decrypt something before it was uh, committed to the chain. And so this is this is a pretty big step up from just like, okay, broadcast everything in the clear, because what it's letting you do is a kind of like commit and reveal process for transaction contents. And the key point is that in a traditional sort of like, if you just imagine, oh, commit and reveal, right? The person who did the committing usually is the person who did does the, the revealing. And the challenge for building something into a blockchain is that you need, um, for, for kind of practical reasons, you need the reveal step to be 
independent of the transaction submitted, right? Like you can't have a system where like somebody submits, here's my commitment to the transaction. And then the whole chain has to wait, you know, for like that, like what happens if that user goes offline and like never posts their thing, right? So basically it's a way for a user to delegate a capability to reveal the transaction to the kind of set of the validators at, at large, um, without having to trust, you know, each individual valid. Um, so that's kind of a picture of like how threshold encryption can be used, uh, to solve this, this kind of, uh, uh, transaction inclusion, um, information issue. The distinction that I would make, um, is between sort of generic threshold encryption for arbitrary transactions and the type of uh, threshold encryption that we're planning to use for Penumbra, which we call uh, flow encryption. So in Penumbra, all of the transactions are already shielded, right? So we don't actually care about encrypting you know, the whole transaction because we already know that the transaction doesn't reveal information. The only thing that we're trying to do is say like, well, in addition to just, you know, uh, changing their own account state, we want a user to be able to contribute some value to some kind of batch. Maybe that's, oh, I'm, I'm submitting this amount of value to a batch swap. Maybe it's, I'm doing a, uh, a governance vote and I want to like, you know, uh, contribute some amount of votes to a, like a vote pool. Um, there's a lot of different contexts where, where that type of problem comes up, but because we only care about encrypting like one, one number, like one contribution, um, we can have the threshold encryption, um, be additively homomorphic. So what that means is you can take all of these encrypted input amounts and you can add up the encryptions and get an encryption of the sum of everybody's contributions and have the validators decrypt only the batch photo. So what this is letting you do is say like, okay, in this system, there's some sort of flow of value and I want each individual participant to be able to conceal their contribution to that flow. But I still want the chain as a whole to be able to have transparency about like, what is the aggregate flow between these different parts of the system. And that is, I think, much more powerful for privacy. Uh, but it's something that's only possible because the number is already a shielded chain. We're not trying to solve the problem of how do we hide, you know, the entire contents of the transaction. We only care about how do we preserve the privacy of this individual's user's contribution to some kind of economic process? until we get the kind of aggregate of, of what activity was done. And that means that you don't have to worry about like, oh, if I encrypt a transaction, is the transaction valid? Well, you know, that for us, that's not a problem because we're not encrypting the transaction. The, the transaction already is, is verifiable and, and, and shielded. We're only trying to conceal, like, what is this user's contribution to this batch? What is this user's uh, governance vote amount. What is this user's like, you know, delegation to this validator and so on? Yeah. Um, no. Th thanks for bringing that that th th that difference. Um, 
But however, like I, I want to, I want to get back to like the original question, um, like because I, like we have you, you, you have we have you now on the show. I want to actually like pick your brain on on this question, which is this like um, how to deal with with MEV. Like if we just zoom out a bit um, from like specific to penumbra, would you like? Do you see threshold decryption at, not as a, like a privacy solution, but like just you know, encrypting the mempool and increasing like the censorship resistance of the chain. Um, from that respect, um, do you think uh, how do you, how do you think the adoption of it can evolve in the future? Because um, you know, there there are like one camp is is arguing for this, and on the other uh, camp you have this like counter argument that like if users are sort of hiding contents of their transactions. Um, they're effectively reducing the amount of value that can, that their transaction brings, and so like in an ideal world where you know um, all of the MEV is redistributed to users, they would not be able to like um, get those like MEV rebates as as, as they could have uh, if they didn't encrypted it in the first place. So that could be like one of the that that is definitely one of the counter arguments that I've seen. So I wonder, like, your opinion on this uh, in this form. Well, in a system where you're sort of bolting uh, threshold decryption onto the side, the the system already is is not private. So if you're doing some kind of like retrospective MEV rebating, I I guess my imagination my imagination is that that still seems probably possible. But I'm not going to say it's like you know, like a bad approach, like maybe it works, I don't know. But to me, the idea of like MEV rebating, is just like very unappealing. Like it feels like, okay, well, we, we, we built a blockchain, you know, it has this like bash semantics. And then like later we realized that all of our mechanism design was broken and it's like extracting all this value from the users. Um, and then instead of like fixing the mechanism design, we're just gonna like pull another like like layer onto the top to try to like take. It's like you're you have like a like a bucket and the bucket is leaking, and instead of just like patching the leak, you like build another bucket under the first bucket, and then have like a hose that can like like go up and like put the the like a, there's like a pump in there somehow to like, you know, get the, the, the water like back up through the hose and then like put it back up into the top bucket. And I don't know, like people can do this, I guess. It just like, it's not appealing to me. Yeah, this is uh, like, I was basically laughing. I was on mute, but this was hilarious. Um, yeah, I think it's, um, I think it's like, I, I generally agree with Zuko on this and Zuko has this like, he says that, you know, and I, I think you would also agree with this, is that like you cannot you cannot build like a game you cannot just like rely on game theory if everything is like disclosed. Um it's 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 going to be like really hard to do that. And and I think like the recently we saw this like in Ethereum where um, you know, this this sandwichers got sandwiched. I think it was like one of the examples where like you know, that, that game theory designs like might not work as you intend them to, to work. Um, I think it's just going to be like extremely hard to build those systems and have them like make them 
worked as intended. Yeah. Um, I mean, that yeah. one was also pretty funny, right? Because you had all these these people reacting, being like, oh, like, it's so bad that this, like, you know, this is like a hack, this is an exploit, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, okay, well, you know, when I capture the, the MEB, that's good. But when you, like, you know, that's that's, like, good and, like, you know, game theory and incentives or whatever. But when you do game theory and incentives and I don't realize what's going on, like, now, all of a sudden, it's an exploit. It's like, okay, well... You know, like, I think it, it gets to the point of like, you know, you can, I, I wouldn't necessarily entirely agree that like, oh, you can't rely on, on game theory, but like the game often is more complex than you understand it to be. I guess like just picking up, picking one piece of you know, your previous answers with John on the MEV side, there are some things that you're doing that are privacy based, right? Like threshold decryption and things like that, shielded chain, but there's also things you're doing that I guess can be copied or or are being used, right? Like batch auctions or a uniform clearing price, like Say's doing things that are, are somewhat similar. Do you think that MEV can be solved without privacy? And when I say solved, I guess I'll I know that's that's really hard to determine, but if we look at like what Flashbots are doing or other players, I guess like if we generally view solving it as the user isn't front run or taken advantage of. I'm not, I'm not sure if that's the solution you yeah. would come with, but yeah, I'm just curious if you think well, that it could be financially solved without privacy. So, so that kind of like question of like, you know, how do you define MVV? I actually think is is key to the answer to your your question, right? So, as a slight you know digression before we return, um, there's an effort to like rebrand MEV from minor extractable value to like maximal extractable value or, or something. And I think that that's a big mistake. I think even if you're in a proof of stake system, like, okay, just understand that like minor means block proposer, that's fine. Um, I think it's important to conceptualize MEV as being arbitrage opportunities where the miner or the block proposer has some kind of privileged position, right? Because that's the part that influences the uh, consensus mechanism. This is like where the economics and the protocol design collide. Um, otherwise, you just have this kind of like, you know, sparkling arbitrage opportunity. Um, and that can be harmful to users. But the question of like, are users getting taken advantage of is a much broader question than just the MEV point. So if you're looking at what are the places where a, a miner or a block proposer has some kind of structural arbitrage advantage because of their role in consensus, I would say a lot of those things can actually be addressed uh, through mechanism design without privacy. Um, however, when you step sort of when you generalize beyond that narrow sense of MEV to the sort of intuitive sense that a lot of people have of like, you know, should it po be possible to like take advantage of users on chain? That's where I think you really do need privacy. And I think a lot of the stuff that people point at as MEV is really, you know, the tip of the iceberg of people being taken advantage of because their transactions 
revealed more information than they really intend. Like if somebody, MEV is very easy to make dashboards of and make charts of. But if I'm running a trading strategy and somebody can see exactly how I provision liquidity and they can predict, you know, here is the like 1% of the time that I'm going to do a mispricing and then they can roll me over. Like that's value that I'm losing because of disclosing more information than is strictly necessary for my participation in, in the protocol. And you know, the, the fact that you can go on like Dune and say like, okay, here's a dashboard, like this specific user's entire trading history. Yeah. You know, that I think is, is not really talked about, um, as being, you know, kind of a, a, a user, like a user exploitation issue uh, as much as it, it should be. And that's the case where I think privacy actually makes a, a huge difference. It's like what we're seeing right now with MEV is just the tip of the iceberg of exploiting uh, over disclosure of information on chain. And even if you fix the tip of the iceberg, you know, the underwater part is still going to remain and like float back up to the surface. So I think that's that's why I think privacy is sort of the end game of 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 that problem space. No, that's that's awesome color. And I mean, you have me thinking now, like I'm always trying to figure out what the inflection point is or, you know, the tipping point for Malcolm Gladwell of, you know, a change in behavior, like people going from something like Ether transparent chains to something like a penumbra where, you know, you have much more privacy and you're not taken advantage of. And I always get, or I mean, at least right now, I'm a little stuck on it, right? Like, obviously there's MEV and there's all these cuts to the user, but the flip side is they get this decentralized global experience of money and things like that. And they get all the benefits of, you know, everything we have today, but it's not enough, I don't think, to drive them to something else, right? But if what you're talking about, like the whole iceberg was surfaced and visible and people were educated on it, then I think people would move over. But like you're super smart and in the weeds, so it's easy for you to know, but 99% of people have no idea how much they're getting taken advantage of. I don't know. What do you think is the the reason or the, yeah. the why do people move over? Like, what is it going to be? So I, I actually don't agree with that sort of theory of, of change, because I think that the problem isn't just like, oh, people need to be educated about the importance of privacy. It's that people don't actually have you know, usable alternatives that they can just start adopting. And so I think that the first problem is like, okay, actually build those systems. Fabra is, is one attempt to do that. Um, but I, again, to use that sort of like Signal or, or WhatsApp example, I think people actually do care about privacy. And uh, the narrative of like, oh, well, like ordinary people don't care about privacy, I think misses the fact that people like also care about like, you know, getting shit done and they're making choices in a, a context that constrains what their options are. So to use a, a non-blockchain example, right? Like abstractly, I would prefer if uh, Google didn't have a record of all of my email ever, but 
On the other hand, most of the people that I communicate with have Gmail accounts. So if I go off and like host my own mail server in my like cabin in the woods or whatever, that actually doesn't meaningfully change uh, my you know privacy situation. It just like makes my life worse. Um, and so I think that the big thing is like as as technologists, as protocol developers, uh, how do we build systems that give people the choice to have privacy without uh, having to make like excessive sacrifices about their other goals? And I don't think that those systems um, have existed yet. So the the theory for for Penumbra is like, okay, well let's let's try to build one useful application, namely a DEX, and let's figure out all of the pieces of the stack that have to be changed in order to make that uh, practical, usable, etc. One really interesting lesson that we've learned through this process is once you set out to like fix privacy, it turns out that like basically every other piece of the blockchain stack and like how people interact with on-chain data and everything relies in a kind of load-bearing way on this assumption that like there's this big database in the sky and you can just query it. But as soon as the data becomes private, that change, right, this is a new design dimension and that has impacts basically on every like step of the way from like a user expressing their intent to like creating the transaction, sending it to the chain, having it be processed, having their their wallet, their block explorer, et cetera. You know, what does all of that even mean in a context where privacy exists? Those are the questions that we're trying to figure out for one kind of narrow use case first, and then use the lessons that we learn from that to generalize to uh, like a broader set of, of functionality. No, that's a good point. You're, you're totally right. The The alternatives don't exist yet. Um, so it is like a like an unfair sort of question. And this might be a little bit off script, uh, but you got me thinking that you probably have some, some pretty solid views on privacy in an AI context, right? I'm not sure what exactly the best question to ask you is. So maybe I'll just leave some room like to you on the, the creativity side, but there are like some serious privacy questions, right? I mean, dropping like private business or user data into an open system like OpenAI or, you know, having the internet scrape all of our data, brute force attack us. Like there are a lot of privacy questions around the AI side. I'm not sure if you have your own views on this or if there's any tie in with Penumbra, but just given the state of affairs and how fast it's growing, I'd love to kind of lob this over to you for any thoughts you might have. Yeah, I would say in the privacy context, you know, the the general principle is this slogan of like attacks only get better, right? So when you disclose information, whatever information you put on this like immutable system, like that's there forever. And, you know, the the attacks only ever get better. Um, and so you have to be really careful about like you know, the safest thing is to like not reveal information at all. And so you should design for that as much as you can in your system. And, and people being able to do like, oh, here's this like, you know, uh, like an AI powered inference where a bunch of stuff that previously was, you know, even if the information was technically out there, it was basically impractical for anybody to figure out. And now it is. I think that's, 
that's a pretty that's going to be a pretty big problem for society generally there's a lot of um societal systems that were built basically on the assumption that um you know even if data is public that doesn't necessarily mean that it's accessible right so for example like land records right maybe you actually have to like show up at a county office in person and like you know go through a bunch of uh, filing cabinets and even if that means that data is like technically public somebody still has to be pretty motivated to go and find it and i think that there's there's a kind of like in progress context collapse where the advent of um sort of more sophisticated processing and sorting and so on um means that things either are like fully private or fully transparent but the sort of practical in between that may have existed in the past is not really stable and so things will kind of either fall in in one direction or be pushed in the other that's an awesome take and I, I was laughing with a buddy the other day and we were talking about how like physical mailing each other physical messages over the mail is the only actual secure way we can ever talk to each other <laughs> well i mean maybe but you know on the other hand the the usps like they photograph all of the mail in order to sort it. And there's a big database of like every piece of mail that has ever been sent in the U.S. Um, and all the metadata there is is searchable. So, like, you know, no, you're right. It's not. It's not the best best comparison. Yeah. I, well, I think that's actually an example of the same the same kind of dynamic where you would have information that in the past was, you know in principle accessible, but in practice, it would be way too complicated for anybody to actually, you know, spend the effort on uh, sorting through it. And now as, as information processing capability, you know, uh, becomes better, it becomes cheaper. As a society, we're going to have to grapple with uh, what that means for all of these existing systems. And maybe that means things more things become private maybe that means that as a society we just like come to terms with some information disclosure or i i don't know but but i think it's a huge problem no i'm with you it's definitely definitely interesting to think through and one other i guess tangential thing and i'll go back to john is penumbra is very much focused on you know finance DeFi, things of that nature do you have a view on privacy in the social context, the Web3 context, like, I guess, a context outside of finance and more on the social media side of things? Yeah, I mean, I would say actually that's like a, a primary, to, for me personally, that is like a much more interesting um, uh, or, or general kind of case to consider. Um, but there's sort of two points uh, that led to putting focus into into penumbra one is the the narrative that i mentioned earlier of like how do you like what what's an opportunity where you can have a private system out compete a transparent alternative on the merits right um but the other is this sense of like at some level 
those two domains are not actually separate, right? Like if you have, suppose that you like, you know, again, in the way of the magic wand, you like perfectly solve privacy for, you know, social media, for communication, et cetera. Um, well, now I guess you can, you can talk to people privately, I guess. But like if you ever wanted to meet up for coffee, well, you know, your, your payment to go on subway, your payment at the coffee store, um, the fact that you like split a bill at the restaurant and like both people used, uh, their, their payment methods. Now, you know, there's like this record of like who went to dinner with who and, and pretty much all of our actual interactions in the like, material physical world involve some kind of economic activity. And so, you know, it's not like I think that having privacy for cryptocurrency trades is like the be all and end all of like, you know, what it means for people to have privacy online. Um, but it is a use case where I think we can make real progress in the short term. And in the long term, if we don't figure out what it means for people to have um, privacy in their economic interactions, that's effectively conceding that like in the real world, we'll never have privacy. And the only way that we could have privacy is in this like purely like virtual interactions online. And I don't really want to live in that world. So that's, you know, that's the motivation. <laughs> no, I'm, I don't want to live in that world either. I'm, I'm with you. And I, I'm with you. I, I think the economic side of the social interaction should be private. And not to ask like a, a basic kind of boring question again, but like, what is the driver to get 2 billion Facebook users to private Facebook? Like, I, I'm always stuck on this, right? Like, what do you think would be the the reason that they would want to switch to something where they have more control? Because like, I just signed up for the Facebook, you know, Cambridge Analytica, you know, leak thing. It's like 50 cents per user is what you're getting or something like that. It's a joke. But I think people are accustomed. They don't care, right? They know their data's out there. They don't really mind. They keep using the service because their friends are there. Like the data leaks aren't enough to move them. So what do you think would move them if, you know, let's say you were working on a private Facebook with Penumbra. I know that's a way out there question, but just trying to figure out. I, I would say, you know, like in, in the in that example that you gave, you know, actually it kind of undermines the idea that they don't, necessarily care right like people who are on facebook who are there because their friends are there the fact that they're there because their friends are there means that you don't actually know that just because they're on the site they don't care like you know it may be that there are certain communities that are just only on facebook um and and so i think it's a mistake to conclude like oh well people don't want privacy or don't care about privacy like the whole point of the like web two social media business model is that as a platform, your goal is to capture your users' social interactions and then use that to have a hold on them, to extract value from those users through advertising and to control what content those users can see. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's, that's how you make money as a company. So like you have like all of the material resources of Facebook being spent 
to ensure that those users don't actually have a meaningful choice. So I think that that's kind of like my take on like what what can we learn about user activity there. And then to the second part of your question about like where does you know what would we expect to see? Um, I think that we're not going to have like you know a private Facebook right because Facebook was created in a particular time and place that doesn't exist at the moment. If, if it's possible that we're going to get something that is uh, different and displaces Facebook or existing social platforms, but I think it's going to have uh, a different um, shape because you know the 2023 context is like very different from the you know 2007 context. And I, I personally don't know exactly what that looks like. I am very excited about, um, you know, decentralized social platforms. Uh, like I think Blue Sky is really cool and it's been very exciting to see, but I don't know, you know, exactly what shape that's going to take. Yeah, the, the uh, monetization model will definitely be a determining factor there as well. Yeah, I actually... Um, actually also don't know but it's pretty exciting i think i think the the social platform is currently at the right um at a high innovation at least that's my observation we see many alternatives but i i actually want to like um we we talked about a lot of stuff and um yeah it was like it's very exciting to pick your brain on the on these uh, topics i want to go back to uh penumbra a bit um um uh, I know that like the like one of the very coolest like so, uh, aspects of Penumbra is that like through IBC it can extend its um, privacy properties to other chains, and um, uh, I know that last year you um, made like the first um, connection to Cosmos Hub from a chain that's not like Cosmos SDK, which was great. Um, so I want to learn a bit on what were the challenges of um, building an IBC connection. Um, get your insights on that front, and also curious on like what what are some like cool applications that that this um, may enable. Uh, yeah, I, I think the interactions would be like you know from an external chain, you can initiate a penumbra transaction perhaps with like interchain accounts and it can even do the the other side of things right you can initiate a transaction from penumbra on other chains um but like assuming you you you're you're um you spend a lot of time on this um do you have any ideas on like what like cool applications can be built um using these um aspects of penumbra yeah so uh, on the first part um the sort of challenges, what's involved in in doing IBC. One thing I, th I think is kind of underappreciated is that IBC is actually like a very general purpose, um, generic uh, mechanism. And so there's sort of IBC as specified, which is in principle something that can do communication between really any kind of like a verifiable state machine, whether it's a you know, what we typically think of as a blockchain or not. 
Um, but then there's IBC as deployed, um, which has the best support when you use the combo of Tetherin plus Cosmos SDK. Um, so in IBC, right, the basic model is you have two chains, chain A and chain B, and both chains are going to run a light client for the other chain so they can verify its chain state. And then the way that they pass messages back and forth is, you know, if chain B wants to send a message to chain A, it'll write some data that's like message chain A at some uh, specified part of its own chain state. And then somebody can post a message to chain A that says, here's, you know, an updated header for chain B. And then here is a uh, message from chain B and a Merkle proof that proves that that message was included in the hash that's in the header that I am giving. And now the chain A can verify uh, that that header is correct. And then it can verify the Merkle proof and it can be it can convince itself that, okay, this message was really validly included in the, the chain B state. So that's kind of the, the basic architecture of, of IBC. And the specification is super, super general about how do you figure out like what kind of client are you allowed to use? What kind of Merkle proofs can you use, et cetera? Really, it's just about specifying what are the messages that are being passed around and uh, what is the interpretation of those messages? So for us to open an IBC connection to the hub, um, basically we had to build on the Penumbra chain an implementation of all of that uh, sort of state system and an implementation of the state machine for, okay, you, you set up the clients, you can build uh, connections, there's a channel abstraction that lets you do like ordered message passing. And so it's really the, the infrastructure of making sure that we're setting up our chain state in a way that other chains, particularly the uh, Cosmos SDK chains, um, can read. Um, so, so that was kind of the technical challenge. Um, in the second part of the, uh, and before I go on, let's say a really cool thing about IBC is you only have to do that work once, right? Uh -huh. Because there's this standardized thing. So as, as IDC is implemented on more chains, we don't have to go and implement, like, here is our custom bridge for talking to, like, Substrate or talking to Near or talking to, you know, Filecoin or, you know, whatever, um, you know, whatever system wants to implement IBC. All we have to do is basically import the correct light client and then all of the, like, you know, message interpretation code uh, is reusable. So there's really cool network effects there. In terms of the applications we can build, right, the simplest possible thing that you can do with uh, cross-chain messaging is doing uh, transfers. I think that that's kind of what we're focused on for the initial launch of Penumbra. Um, transfers are enough to be able to you know, unlock trading, etc. Um, beyond that, one thing that we're pretty excited about is... Um, interchain accounts. And because we have a private chain, there's a really interesting opportunity to use interchain accounts to provide privacy uh, to other chains. So 
we're probably not going to be able to have inter like inbound interchain accounts where somebody who has uh, an account on another chain can cause uh, their state on Penumbra to be updated. And the reason is that their account state on Penumbra isn't, you know, is the, that's not public. That's not something the chain can just edit. But what we can do is have accounts on Penumbra that can control accounts on transparent chains. And a really cool feature that we're, we're thinking about is the idea of making ephemeral interchain accounts. So on Penumbra, we have our initial uh, narrowly scoped functionality of doing uh, private uh, trading. But suppose that somebody wants to do some other kind of private interaction, right? They want to interact with some uh, contract state on uh, on Osmosis, on Juno, whatever. They should be able to create and fund like an ephemeral interchain account on that other chain. Do that one uh, smart contract interaction and then have the results of that uh, interaction that they did be automatically sort of put back into their account on the penumbra chain. Um, and that way, as a, as a user, if you want to access the contract state on some other chain, you can do so uh, without having to reveal your entire account history and also without having to juggle between you know, having all these different um, accounts. That this is kind of coming back to the the example, like way at the beginning of the podcast of like, you know, people who who are currently doing obfuscation with various different like unlinked accounts, right? You know, but then from a UX perspective, it kind of sucks to have to figure out like, hey, I have these like seven two different accounts, and I have to remember what purpose each of them was for. You know, wouldn't it be better if just like every interaction with the public state that I did um, happened through its own like automatic uh, ephemeral account that was just created for that purpose and then brought back to my main uh, private account where I can see what I've been doing, but that's not publicly revealed to everybody else. That's pretty cool. Um, I, I think we're about... We're, we're approaching to sort of the the end of our podcast here. Um, like before we close out, I want to ask uh, one final question. Uh, I know that um, Penumbra um, uh, will launch a mainnet in in sort of um, sort of phases. Um, there is this like B one being planned and two being planned. Uh, could you perhaps like speak a bit on? The roadmap there. Um, um, can you can you see like the, the timeline of some of the things that um, that are in your roadmap, and like what's the difference between? Um, I know that B one will be limited functionality, but perhaps um, uh, it will be good if we can hear that from you. What, yeah. What's the difference? Yeah. What's the difference? So um, we're planning to go to mainnet by the fall. Um, the the only uh, feature that we decided to not include in the initial mainnet is actually the threshold encryption. Otherwise, uh, we have our our initial scope of doing. You know, you can do private transactions. You can 
bring any asset from any IVC connected chain, move it into Penumbra, record it privately, uh, transfer it privately, and trade it privately. Um, the only thing that we uh, decided we'd uh, you know push out to a, a chain upgrade is the the flow encryption. And the reason is that in order to do threshold encryption um, or threshold decryption uh, among the validator set, you need to have a way for the validators to um, integrate that uh, additional uh, decryption ceremony as part of the consensus process. And there's an extension to Tendermint slash call it BFT that allows us to do that. Um called vote extensions in ABCI version two. But unfortunately, uh, for Tendermint related reasons, that feature, which was supposed to ship uh, last year, uh, didn't. And is it on track? Henry, sorry to cut you there. Is that yeah. uh, when, you, when, you, when you mean um, um, ABCI two, do you mean ABCI plus plus or is it? Yeah, else. so a- ABCI++ got renamed to ABCI2. There's, let's say, like there's been some chart. Um, so ABCI++, ABCI2 uh, was supposed to ship last year. Uh, it didn't. Um, and I believe it's on track to ship this summer. But uh, we didn't want to like couple our like release uh, schedule to like being critically dependent on that upstream feature. And so we decided to cut it from the initial um, uh, mainnet and just like wait until it is, uh, you know, released, stable, et cetera. Um, But the whole rest of the system is designed as if that's how we work, right? So we're not going to have any kind of like data management problem um, when it comes to trying to do that. It'll just be a, a drop in change. So that's that's really the only thing that we've um, cut down, um, and then beyond that, it's it's mostly a question of uh, once this system is live, right? It's a decentralized system; it has kind of a life of its own. Um, you know, we're gonna see like how people use it, what kinds of things people want, uh, and. And let that process be kind of driven by um, the the sort of on-chain activity, the community, et cetera. We have a lot of ideas of like, hey, here's all these cool things we could do. You know, we could do ephemeral interchain accounts. We could, um, you know, try to, you know, do more improvement on the DEX part. We could try to uh, have, you know, maybe we have kind of be a liquid staking provider. I don't know, right? Um, but... All of that stuff, uh, I think, makes sense to try to plan out. Like once we have something that's like live, and then once we can get some kind of like product feedback of like how does this thing actually get used? Because because what we really want to avoid is a situation where you know we go and we like build this whole thing, and eventually you know six years later launch it, and then oops, like turns out people have have you know, other stuff that they want to do. Like, like, how do you get the sort of fastest path to getting like feedback from reality about what works, what doesn't, what things need to be changed and so on. 
Um, and so the post mainnet plans are kind of contingent on like, you know, how do people actually use Panera? Where does the community want us to go? Um, et cetera. Yeah. Basically the, you don't want to add another circle to that Venn diagram, um, like a yeah. non-overlapping circle. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Um, Henry, this was a fantastic conversation. I really enjoyed it deeply. Um, we we talked about regulation, how to get your takes on AI, like socials, um, future of privacy in crypto, and uh, um, last but not least, like uh, Penumbra. Um, yeah, um, like thank you very much for sharing all this like intel with us. Uh, I think this was a fantastic conversation. Yeah, Henry, thank you. Thank you so much, Henry. I, I was just thinking, listening to you and John on the technical bits, and uh, it's fascinating given how much of a head privacy has come in crypto and just for the world generally. So really appreciate your thoughts. You've clearly thought about this a ton, and it, it definitely comes out in your answers. So really appreciate your time. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Uh Happy to happy to share. If anybody wants to, you know, check out more stuff about Penumbra, um, we have a Discord you can join, and uh, we ship our, you know, half finished broken code every two weeks. I'll, you know, you can test it out. Um, there's links and everything in the Discord if, if people want to check it out. So awesome! Thank you so much, Henry. Thank you, John.